0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: When you think video games, Netflix isn't the platform that springs to mind for most people. But the streaming service is on a mission to change that. Speaking of games, artificial intelligence, it seems, isn't content with beating humans at digital games of chess and StarCraft and Gran Turismo. It's just defeated some real-world sporting champions. Also, online porn passports. We look at what they aim to do and why the federal government is shying away from them for now. Plus, what not to ask Siri in an emergency. All this and much more coming up This is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. My name is Ray Johnston, and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston, filling in for Mark Fennell. And this week, I am joined by a brand new guest, Jamin Mayer, software engineer and founder of Brisbane Makerspace. Welcome to Download This Show, Jamin.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
1: And a big welcome back to longtime guest, Sarah Moran, co-founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy. Hey, Sarah.
2: Hey, Ray. Great to be here.
1: Now, last week on the show, we spoke about Netflix putting a halt to its DVD delivery service. Would you believe that was still going until recently? And now it seems like it's using that spare energy to invest in a gaming audience. Sarah, what kind of gaming presence does Netflix have?
2: Well, you'd be surprised, but they've actually been working in stealth. Well, I'm calling it stealth because I hadn't heard of it. But for the last two years, uh, so since 2021, they've been slowly launching a series of mobile games. So really getting to understand that gaming audience. And uh, yeah, they're absolutely learning from that and building and building and building. So some games you might find on your mobile um, is Stranger Things 3 and Stranger Things 1984, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. So really leveraging some of the existing IP. Um, But they've also built a number of games that uh, are unique and are not reliant on Netflix IP. So they're really starting to
1: learn that gamer culture, which is pretty exciting. So how are they hoping to expand on what they've already got, Jamin?
0: Well, I think it's kind of a natural extension. Like all, a lot of companies these days are moving into streaming services, which makes a lot of sense from a recurring revenue perspective, right? They get to kind of keep the IP and keep selling it to you over and over again, rather than that one off kind of... Uh, cost if you were to just buy one outright. So I think, um, yeah, gaming certainly makes a lot of sense and just yeah, adding on to what Sarah mentioned, um, I had a quick look as well this morning. There's some really interesting looking titles, but they're all definitely centred around the mobile game at the moment uh, rather than, I guess, your, your full, I guess, desktop or console titles like you'd get like on an Xbox or PlayStation.
1: I mean, well, the mobile gaming audience is pretty huge, isn't it, Sarah? It's not like it's a small market
2: look, there's a lot of money in mobile games. Ask my mom; She spends a lot of it on uh, lots of games that she plays in front of the TV. Um, but yeah, look, you know, games in 2020 was projected to, you know, really capture about $160 billion. So it's no surprise that Netflix really want to start to capture that. I'm anticipating that it's something a bit more like, you know, a game pass so that you're really sort of starting to feel that flow between, you know, you sit down at night, you're going to kick on a, a show or you might kick over and play a game. I know that's something my partner and I do. It's either we're watching a show or we're picking up a controller and we're going to play a game together. So... When there's so much cash on the table, I absolutely really follow. Netflix VP of games, Mike Verdu, is like absolutely gunning out there to try and capture that game's audience.
1: So for those who aren't familiar, Game Pass, it's Xbox's product that is a subscription service. And you do sit down very much like a a Netflix service and choose what game you want to play. And they're all included in that monthly fee. So it kind of makes sense (laughs) for Netflix to then make their own Netflix of games, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. And I mean, if you think about it, so the Xbox, you can also be viewing content. Um, There's a lot of, you know, real integrations there that can happen in the future if that's what Netflix aspires to do. And the way they're approaching it is different to how other companies have tried to approach it in the past. I think a number of traditional companies, so for example with Google, um, they attempted to create an entire game's arm and failed before even releasing the first game. So they created a company called Stadia, hired all of this great talent and brought them together, but then you know, they really didn't understand games. And so Netflix feel like they're going the other way around, which is like, okay, let's go where the gamers are. Let's go where that community is. Let's go where that pre-existing infrastructure structure is and learn. Um, And that's why I say it's been two years in stealth, even though I'm sure they have a lot of players. Really building that out and doing it properly is going to be something that I think will be a key to their success.
1: There's been a lot of work over the years to have games as respected as other forms of entertainment, you know, on the same level as movies and, and TV shows. Jamin, do you think it makes sense for Netflix to be moving into this space?
0: Absolutely. I think the gamers definitely get a lot of flack. So yeah, I know my brother, for example, used to always get in trouble all the time for being on his games all the time. So um, I think games are definitely starting to become a lot more respected in that regard, especially through COVID. Everyone was spending a lot more time at home and there weren't a lot of other things. People got tired of, I guess, watching Netflix all day and um, more people started branching out to gaming. I know I was kind of one of them as well. Adding on to what Sarah mentioned before as well, like I think they're approaching it from a really good, I guess, structure in that they're starting from a small focus, which is mobile gaming, and they're letting it organically grow and expand out. Um, I wasn't quite around at the start of Netflix with the whole them starting with DVDs, but my understanding is, is how they kind of approach that, right? They start off by mailing DVDs to people, right? And then as the demand grew and as as the need arose, they actually started branching out into streaming, right? And so I think that's kind of the approach they're going with here with this gaming service.
1: So would you play games? games on Netflix, Jamin?
0: I've had a look and there's a few on there that look quite interesting. I've downloaded a few of them this morning. It's interesting how they've done it due to some weird kind of app store re- restrictions that you actually have to go and download them separately. So um, you can open them up in the Netflix app and, and it's all included in subscription, but you actually kind of have to get kicked over to a separate download page to be able to do that. But yeah, it's definitely something I can see myself doing for sure.
1: Any titles on there that would catch your eye, Sarah?
2: Ah, oh, look, I mean, give me the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. I'm ready for a back whenever it's, you know, whenever it's around. I think what's interesting when we're talking about that respect is it's also a respect for how games are created. So when we think about the games industry, I think technologists think oh yeah you whack some devs in a room throw some designers in there in the same way that I'd build some enterprise banking app I could create a game but games culture is very different and the way that game producers are assembled is much more akin to Hollywood so if you think about you know the studios that come together to create Hollywood films and their collaborations and their attachments that's much more similar to how we create games and so I think that's where the respect is coming in is to to say, there is also a similarity in respect for creativity and the creative industries and what that means. And I'm sure there's respect for those megabucks that are coming in <laughs> off the back of it as well.
0: Yeah, I think a, I think a big part of that gaming um, is storytelling as well, like you mentioned. So like, I think more people are starting to realise that gaming and, and things like movie and TV shows are actually a lot more closely related than people might think.
1: Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And artificial intelligence has already proven itself to be pretty good at beating humans at video games. But the competition has been kicked up a notch. Jamin, what's the story here?
0: So it's a pretty interesting one. Basically, a team trained an artificial intelligence system to fly a drone around a competitive drone flying course. So to explain a little bit more about that, competitive drone flying has kind of been a thing for for quite a while now. I did a little bit of experimenting in that actually a number of years ago. I I am technically a licensed drone pilot. Um, It's quite fun. But yeah, what they've done is they've basically trained this AI system to automatically fly this drone around a course. So there's obstacles, there's like gates that they have to fly through and around and things like that. And they've actually managed to beat the humans, like these really experienced professional human drone pilots, um, at something that they thought they were the best at, <laughs> which is quite interesting.
1: <laughs> so how exactly did they train this AI, Sarah?
2: Well, the way the AI works is you've got cameras on the drone uh, and then you have uh, like an internal system that allows it to see, feel where it is on on the Is it an arena? Let's call it an arena.
0: Yeah, let's say arena. Let's say
2: arena. (laughs) Um, And then you have a separate system that you feed that data into and then it says, okay, great. Well, given where it is and what's around it, where will it go next? And so there is some software that's been created. It's called Swift. And these people have been training the AI to get better and better on those courses. And so they I won't say think, but it, it allows <laughs> it to be able to generate where it should go next and to be able to drive it. So it's pretty incredible that it's been able to be so successful in beating some of these humans. However, I will say it did lose 40% of its races. So it's not perfect yet.
0: Yeah, so the type of model that they use is called a deep reinforcement learning model. And like you were saying, it basically means that the drone teaches itself from, from trial and error, right? Um, they It actually crashed hundreds of times during testing, right? Um, they actually built out this whole simulated environment where it could actually fly around in simulation and teach itself how to fly. And once it got good enough to do that, they kind of then moved it into the real world and then... Yeah, it kept doing the same thing, right? So the drone will learn, right, okay, if I crash, if I, if I drive, go this way, I crash, and that's a bad thing, right? And so it, it just learns continuously and continues to teach itself where the obstacles are and how to avoid them.
1: So where in the real world do you think that we could use this kind of technology?
2: That's a great question. I think it's very similar to self-driving cars, but it, it is very similar in how these things learn. So I'm very interested in how that AI technology of being able to process that data can be used in different environments. I know there is a lot of fear about, well, if a drone can beat humans on a race course, can they beat us in the skies? Can they beat us elsewhere? I want it to deliver me lollies when I'm ready. If we could, if we could uh, speed that up, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. I'll take my uh, my drone delivery service to be improved. But I think there's the balance of the fear of what's possible, and then also what's actually the practicality of being able to implement some of this technology. Because this technology, uh, it absolutely had to train again and again and again and again on such. Small surfaces, um, that that was a lot of data that it had to learn from. So the future implications are yet to be seen.
0: And I think this specific implementation of this technology, as well, like as you mentioned, was really specific. Like they had a basically a closed environment, a set course, nothing really changed or moved around much. And um, relatively speaking, that's a very easy thing to train an AI model to do. Right, As soon as you put it out in the out in a public environment, there's birds, there's uh, trees, planes, interference, all sorts of crazy things like that that impact it. That it needs to take. Into account, so yeah, I would love to be able to order my my um, Uber Eats and, and have it delivered by drone. And yeah, honestly, I, I foresee this sort of technology, um, specifically around drones, would was best used in that sort of environment. I think rather than yeah, more more broadly speaking.
1: So, other than the loss of pride, is there anything <laughs> we need to be concerned about with you know, AI knowing how to fly drones better than us?
0: I think there are definitely some ethical concerns. Like um, I've done a little bit of AI work in in, in my work as well as a software engineer, and it's something that we're always having to be very, very mindful of. Um, What sort of training data are you using to actually train these these AI systems? Have you got permission to use it? Is it um, sourced appropriately and those sorts of things? And then on the flip side as well, how is it actually being used as well? Like a lot of people kind of um, see drones as a very big military tool and military asset, there's concerns like that, like what if you train these kind of drones to remove the human element from them, right, and now you've got these, I guess, automated drone systems. Um, so, yeah, there's some, some definitely um, big ethical questions that need to be asked there.
1: What do we need to do to make sure something like that doesn't happen, Sarah?
2: I think that's where we're having a lot of conversations more broadly about AI, and Jamin touched on it. It's this idea of, well, is the AI going to make a decision without human intervention, or is it going to be suggestive? So in this case, when you're in a controlled environment, it's okay that a drone flies around by itself. You know, it can do that without us needing to intervene. But if we were going to put that out into the field, then perhaps a drone learning how to do something and go somewhere faster is good. But being able to have the interaction with a human to say, don't hit the bird, you know, or... Sarah's waving down over there maybe give her a wave back you know there's there's lots of interventions that we might want to do that will make that experience more enhanced and it's kind of like uh, across AI more broadly we're having the conversation about AI as a co-pilot so, where it becomes important is to think about, is AI going to make decisions for us or is it going to support us to make better decisions?
0: And that's a really good point. Um, I, as I mentioned, like, I'm a software engineer and like a big part of my, my job is sitting there writing code, right? And there's actually a lot of tools. There's one specifically called Copilot, right? And and that's where I see it being really effective is kind of helping people make decisions rather than making decisions for them.
1: It's when we take the humanity out of AI that there's a problem, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston and I am joined by Jamin Mayer, software engineer and founder of Brisbane Makerspace, and Sarah Moran, co-founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy. And the eSafety Commission has recommended rolling out what's been dubbed as a porn passport. Sarah, can you take us through what exactly a porn passport is?
2: Well, I can tell you it isn't something where you get a lot of stamps, Uh, so (laughs) we can just rule that out. The idea here is that residents who can prove they're of the age of consent and can access pornography legally um, are given access tokens uh, with the measure acting as this porn passport. So it's the idea, yes, you are allowed in. Here are your tokens. You may come through the gates and you may view the porn. Um, And this is what the eSafety Commission have put forward as a safeguard uh, to to really stop children accessing porn, which is really, really quite a large problem that the eSafety Commission are trying to address. And they've come up with this roadmap over the last two years after being briefed on some of the issues that are being faced at the moment. So, yeah, it's the idea that you need a key to get in, you
1: need your passport. So how exactly would you sign up for one of these, Jamin?
0: Well... It's kind of a pretty broad concept of a a porn passport, right? Like there's no sort of specific, I guess, uh, suggestions or recommendations at the moment in terms of how it's implemented. There's still a lot of discussions about how that might work. There's suggestions that could, for example, um, include biometrics. So you might have to take, I guess, photos of your face and, and age verification tech might be used to validate you. It might link up to some sort of digital digital ID scheme. There's so many different um, aspects of it that they could use. So it's more, so speaking, a broad, I guess, concept as it is rather than a specific implementation at the moment.
1: Now, the government has delayed a potential trial of this technology. Why have they decided not to go full steam ahead with this, I think
2: it's part of what Jamin just touched on is that we don't know how to implement it yet. You know, it's quite a strong signal for the government to to progress with this because you're really coming up against the privacy of, of everyone over 18, um, and that is something that the government would have to take on. And without that level of detail and without some of those prescriptions and without knowing some of those outcomes, that becomes quite challenging. There was a recommendation put forward for a pilot, and that's also not been accepted, which, you know, a, a pilot would at least give some sort of guidance as to what does and doesn't work and perhaps offer more feedback as as to how this can move forward. But um, yeah, so at the moment, it's not going ahead. Don't worry. You don't have to get out your your, your porn (laughs) passport uh, when you need to. Um, But it really is fascinating what some of the issues are that they've had to address. There really are a lot of young people who are being involuntarily exposed to pornography. And I think this is a big part of what people are trying to prevent. They're particularly looking at uh, you know, families and homes that may not be able to prevent that themselves. So if they are low income or, you know, using technology that, that might not be quite adequate for for all of the, you know, the net nannies and the, and the, the things that parents can do. So you can really understand why the eSafety Commissioner is
0: trying to take this on.
1: Are there privacy concerns with the government potentially knowing that you are visiting pornography sites, Jamin?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of I guess one of my biggest concerns with some sort of system like this is a really technically difficult problem to be able to authenticate who you are, but also keep you anonymous. It's very difficult to do that, right? Again, like who's storing this data? How long is it being kept for? All of those sorts of things. Um, I've personally been involved in the Optus data breach, the Latitude Finance data breach, like several other data breaches, right, just in the last kind of year or two alone. I've had to get new passports, driver's license, all that sort of stuff. And so it's a massive problem that a lot of thought needs to be put into because, yeah, it it is a serious concern.
1: So what do you think we can learn about those past data breaches that could be applied in this instance to protect people?
0: Um, Honestly, one of the simplest and easiest things to implement is just don't keep the documents around. That's it. That's all you have to do. Um, So, yeah, I part of um, my role in running Brisbane Makerspace, right, is we have to onboard new members and we have to verify who they are. And so um, a lot of companies will actually take photocopies of your license or they'll take pictures and things of them, but there's no actual need to keep them around, right? So we just cite them. We we check that their ID matches who they are. We take note of that and and then that's that. I get there are compliance issues in some industries, but for the vast majority of people who are collecting this information in these documents, they don't actually need to store this around. And this applies to biometric data too. So, and if they're not keeping it right, um, it can't get stolen
2: that's definitely our approach at Girl Geek Academy is we don't hold data. We work with young people, we work with families, and we make sure that we hold as little data as possible. If we're engaging with young people online, we ask them to use a pseudonym. Even though we know who they are and we have verified it, we don't want them to be putting their data online either. And so really building up that e-safety capacity is something that takes time time and education. And so it is interesting that one of the first hurdles uh, was to be able to say, well, why aren't we teaching people in schools not to access pornography or the context of that, some of the issues around violence in pornography? Or why aren't we getting families to, you know, to take this labour on themselves? And the eSafety Commission found that this did not work. But I think one of the arguments against that is maybe these programs are underfunded, maybe they aren't as big a priority, and that one of the options being put forward is this porn passport, but some people would say that it is potentially a cheaper, cost-effective, throw-the-blanket-over-the-whole-lot kind of solution to a much broader problem that could be dealt with through education.
0: And yeah, just building on that, I think uh, people are always going to find ways to access this, right? Um, this was a problem well before, I guess, online pornography websites, like people would have all sorts of, of pornography, right? I think education is going to be a big part of fixing this problem as well, rather than slapping some sort of band aid on it, like you were saying, like just putting a blanket lock and key over the whole lot a lot more needs to be thought about the um, educating people on on the harms and and what they see necessarily shouldn't translate to real life.
2: And the benefit of that is that once someone turns 18, they have that education with them moving forward as well. It's not like once you get your porn passport that you have all the context you need to move forward. So building (laughs) that
1: education piece becomes important too. How have the porn sites themselves reacted to this idea?
0: Well, broadly speaking, a lot of them have said they need more time to consult and develop the technology, and I would mostly agree with that as well. I definitely understand that there's quite an urgent need to fix or improve the situation, but you can't do that at the risk of people's privacy and, and bad implementation and things like that. So, I do think a balanced approach needs to be had.
1: Sarah, do you think a porn passport would work ultimately?
2: For who? I think, you know, if the problem is young people are uh, accessing porn, there's two parts of that. One, they're seeking it out. And then two, they're being exposed to it involuntarily. Um, this is a computer usage issue, you know. Um, and it is, a, a, a. as I said, it's bringing young people into that conversation to say, well, what even is pornography? It's not about let's just keep you wrapped up in cotton wool until you're 18 um, because those issues then are just kicked down the road until those people are in their early 20s. And there are issues around the way that women are portrayed and the violence um, that comes from that in some of the more extreme uh, iterations of uh, pornography that exist. And I think that um, being able to address some of those issues at the same time becomes really important. But I understand that there is the role to protect young people. So I will say I do not envy the role of the eSafety Commissioner in being able to make those trade-offs. But, you know, there are other considerations to be made about the right to privacy that we all have as adults.
1: Download This Show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology, culture, and we use them a lot now. But there's some new research out on one particular thing you definitely shouldn't be relying on voice assistance for – Jamin, what did these researchers behind this new study find?
0: These researchers had a look into asking, uh, or how do voice assistants react when they're asked questions about CPR, right? How do I perform CPR? Does this person need CPR? Um, That sort of stuff. So, um, it was a pretty small study. Um, They basically asked eight verbal queries to a range of different voice assistants. So, I'm not going to say the trigger words, but the ones from Apple, Amazon, uh, Google, et cetera, right? You, you know the ones I'm talking about. And they asked it, yeah, all of these different queries, right, just to see how they would respond and the type of instructions and responses they got.
1: And what kind of responses did they get, Sarah? Oh, all sorts of disastrous
2: things. I mean, I did it this morning and I got... Here's a web result for that, and I'm thinking I just hollered at you that someone's nearly dead, and you're asking me to Google it. Um, <laughs> so it's it's not exactly the the best uh, infrastructure, but we got. Hmm, I don't know that one. Sorry. I don't understand. Words fail me, which is exactly what you want to hear when you're in the middle of a crisis. Words fail me too, mate. So there really is an issue with some of the assistance that we use not being very assistant-y.
1: So I find this really surprising because I have a watch, a fitness watch, that if I fall and don't move, it will automatically ring emergency services or contact them and also send them my GPS coordinates. So if my watch can do that, What should we not be relying on voice assistants for anymore? I I feel like I've just been thrown some terrible information. (laughs) I've been living a lie this whole time.
2: (laughs) It's not strange if you think about the waves in which this technology has been brought out. So voice assistants were brought out before your watch became a thing. Um, You know, there's a bit of technical debt there, which means we have to go back and, and update some of these systems to be able to bring us forward. And as we move forward, I'm finding it very interesting as we're using new types of AI that involve chat, um, is that the chat is very one way. So, what does surprise me with voice assistants or, or any sort of chat enabled conversation is that I'm never asked a question about more detail. So when I holler, hey, I'm stuck, I'm not getting anything back from that assistant to say, what do you mean stuck, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that could mean a lot of things. I'm encouraging any devs who are listening to go back and do some more development on some of our voice assistants.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think the the main thing to understand is how these voice assistants are built is is pretty specific, right? So they they use something called natural language processing to try and extract the meaning from what you're saying, right? And that normally boils down to a single intent is what they call it. And so if I ask a question like how do I perform CPR, the intent that's extracted from that might be CPR, but they need to pre-program this into these voice assistants. in terms of things that we shouldn't be relying on voice assistants for. Um, short answer is nothing medical. Like, don't ask it for medical <laughs> advice, right? We have, we have very strict uh, regulations and training requirements for anyone in the medical industry for a reason, right? And so these big tech companies with um, these voice assistants, we shouldn't be relying on them for that.
2: Please consult your doctor. <laughs>
0: exactly, yeah. Um, and another interesting thing is one of the projects I've been working on at work has actually been implementing a large language model like ChatGPT into um, one of our, our kind of products. And, yeah, we had to be really, really careful about that because people would ask it questions, right, and then um, by default it can and will actually give you medical advice. And so it's, yeah, it's something that we need to be really careful of when dealing with these voice assistants is that, yeah, we, we shouldn't be relying on it for medical advice.
2: So I've been working on an AI program at the moment uh, that translates. Scribes patient notes. Just run your consultation as normal, and then the voice is captured, and then we generate patient notes, clinical notes, and a medical summary. So if you need referrals to a GP or referrals to another doctor. And so being able to create that is really important um, because it speeds up all the admin time. However, what we found is that you need to code things in there to stop the AI from hallucinating. And so... Oh hallucination uh, when it comes to AI and these large language models means that the AI um, will either make things up or it will go above and beyond. (laughs) And if you don't code it properly, it'll be like, yeah, but I think this person might have X, Y, Z. And you're like, no, that is not your job. Sit down. So as we mentioned before, you know, it really is about being able to say a human needs to be able to engage in that process and be able to be the doctor. And so this is why we really need to think about how we're using these devices and how to do it effectively and ethically.
1: So do Apple, Amazon, Google, do they have a responsibility to fix this issue?
0: Absolutely. I think they are kind of the reason this technology exists, right? And they're kind of, whether people like it or not, like they're forcing it on everyone, right? It's in your phone, it's in your, your Google Homes and, and everything else that's around. And, and people are relying on it, whether or not they should be, right? So they definitely have, I think, at least an ethical responsibility to ensure at minimum they're directing people to ask for medical advice rather than just throwing up no answers or, or unuseful stuff, right?
2: And what we need to do is make sure that Uh, these companies are held to account to make sure that these services are updated
1: for 2023. Well, that is all we have time for on the show today. Big thank you to Jamin Mayer, software engineer and founder of Brisbane Makerspace. First time on the show, nailed it.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And a big thank you as well to Sarah Moran, co-founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy. Always wonderful to have you on the show. Looking forward to the next one. Remember to follow Download This Show on the ABC Listen app so that you never miss an episode. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.